Hey there, it's Olivia Allen Price, host of Bay Curious, the podcast. KQED Podcasts wants to thank listeners like you whose support makes this podcast possible. If you want to help us continue to make great content, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcasts. And thanks. From KQED. So many questions, so little time. Every week we here at Bay Curious receive dozens and dozens of questions from you out there in listening land. And every now and then we try to answer a slew of them in one episode. Today, we're taking on three. Brene Watkins has noticed one thing her neighborhood lacks. Where in the Bay Area are most of the children? Wiley Gregg wants to know about dueling high streets in Palo Alto. I've always been puzzled why there were two downtowns. And Emily Stoffer wonders about some curious statues at the Palace of Fine Arts in San Francisco. Why do all of these women have their backs turned? I'm Olivia Allen Price, and it's time for a Bay Curious Lightning Round. Support for Bay Curious comes from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Committed to brewing things the right way since 1980, because when you're a family-run brewery, there's no other way to do it. Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, still family-owned, operated, and argued over. And be sure to stay tuned through the end of the show so you can play our monthly trivia game for a chance to win some cool prizes. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment, and if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. Whether you're a parent yourself or you have friends who are, you know having a family in the Bay Area can be hard. We met up with a few parents near the swings in San Francisco's Panhandle. What has been your perception of where families live in the Bay Area? Uh, not in San Francisco. <laughs> I'd always heard that people tend to leave San Francisco when they have kids. A lot of my friends who've had kids have left. Once you have a kid, you become more sensitive to you know, the homelessness and other um, like the trash everywhere. problems in the city. The cost of living is very high. There's also this fear of the SF school lottery. Even if you live here, there's a feeling that it's for a short time, your days are numbered. The narrative goes like this. The Bay Area is expensive. The schools, eh, they're a mixed bag. Getting around is miserable. Life is just too hard here to make it work with kids. So when you have them, if you've got the means, it's best to leave. Our question asker, Renee Watkins, has heard this storyline and noticed her neighborhood in the Berkeley Hills has very few children. She wonders... Where in the Bay Area are most of the children? KQD data journalist Lisa Pickoff-White spent a day digging in the data to find out what's what. Welcome, Lisa. Hey. So first up, I want to ask about one pretty commonly held belief. Are there actually fewer kids here than there used to be? 
There's actually more kids than there used to be in the Bay Area over the last few decades. And partially that's because, and you've probably noticed if you've been sitting in traffic, that there's more people. Um, And so with a larger population growth, there have come more children. Something else that's interesting is that since the 1990s, the percentage of children has pretty much stayed the same. So as more people have come, they've had kids. However, where those kids live can be very disproportionate. So when you look at the region, I guess sort of this is to answer Renee's question, where do families tend to live? Once again, we've kind of had these differences between numbers of people and percentages of population. So Santa Clara County has the most people in the Bay Area, so it's unsurprising that they also have the most children. However, when you look at the largest portion of the population, Contra Costa actually has the largest percentage of children. And we're actually seeing kind of a big demographic shift in parts of the Bay Area right now. So there's parts of the Bay Area that are older. There's a lot more elderly people living there. Um, This is something you hear about Marin and something you also hear about, for instance, the Berkeley Hills, where our question asker lives. Over 30 percent of people are over 65 there, actually. That's pretty high. And um, less than 20 percent of people are under 18. So, like, clearly, I can see where she's coming from. She isn't seeing a lot of children. But if she lived in a place like in Contra Costa, she might see a very different vision. However, older people are starting to retire or leave their single-family homes for some reason. And so we're starting to see increases in Marin, for instance, of younger families starting to move in. Hmm, Interesting. So it really kind of depends on where you are in sort of the nine-county Bay Area that you're going to see like sort of different changes happening. Exactly. And there's this perception that there's just a lot less kids in the Bay Area as a whole. And that's not true. We're actually pretty similar to other metropolitan areas. There are a lot less kids, though, in San Francisco. San Francisco has the smallest number of families of any major metropolitan city in the country. And what what impact do you think it's going to have as more and more millennials are starting families? This is a really good question. So there's actually millennials are the largest generation. There's more millennials than there are baby boomers, right? I mean, we're both millennials, you know, go millennials. (laughs) But um, millennials are having less children. And so this is a quandary that has left demographers who I've spoken to in, where they're like, okay, well, there's a lot more of them. So we should be planning for a lot more families. That's what's happened in the past. But at the same time, we've seen the birth rate throughout the country really going down. But when people are doing planning development, where they're trying to decide where to build homes, uh, where to build schools, this is a question that they're wrestling with right now, and they don't really have an answer to. All right. And if people want to dig more into these numbers, where can they do that? If you go to baycurious.org, you can go right down to specific neighborhoods to see how they stack up against each other in the Bay Area. It's a lot more granular. We also have a lot more information about how this has changed over time and where families are moving. All right, great. So check that out, baycurious.org. Thanks, Lisa. Thank you. Next up, we're going down to the peninsula where Wiley Gregg has lived since the 1980s. I was trained as a city planner, and I've always been puzzled since I've been living and working in Palo Alto, uh, why there were two downtowns. That's right. Palo Alto effectively has two downtowns. The main drag is University Avenue, which connects to 101, and it runs directly into the main entrance into Stanford. And then just a couple miles south is California Avenue, another bustling street with shops, cafes, and restaurants. So why does this small city need two downtowns. Reporter Ryan Levy went back in time to find out. 
The story behind Palo Alto's dueling downtowns dates back to before Palo Alto even existed. So the town of Mayfield was established here sometime following the gold rush. That's Laura Jones, president of the Stanford Historical Society. She says Mayfield was one of many small towns dotted among the farms of the 19th century peninsula. And so there was a small downtown of general stores and blacksmiths and uh, saloons and lumber yards that served the farming community that surrounded it. That small downtown was California Avenue, or Lincoln Street, as it was called back then. And when Leland and Jane Stanford came looking in 1886 for a town to support the new university they were building nearby, they turned to Mayfield. They had just one condition. They went to see the leaders of the town of Mayfield and asked them if they would close the saloons because they were concerned um, about the students having access to liquor. Now, this was during the heart of the temperance movement. And Stanford knew that having a dry town associated with his university was a good political move. But Mayfield had 13 saloons. It was known as a place where farmers could come and take a load off at the end of a hard week. So when the Stanfords made their offer... The leaders of the town of Mayfield uh, refused to close their saloons. Luckily for the Stanfords, they had a friend who was able to just buy up 700 acres of land nearby and start selling lots, effectively building a new town. If you bought one of the lots, you were not allowed to sell liquor on it. Uh, And if you did, the property reverted. And so they established a dry town, which is now what we think of as Palo Alto. The two towns coexisted for about 20 years. But as Palo Alto continued to grow and thrive, Mayfield began to struggle. Finally, Mayfield uh, gave it up and incorporated itself into Palo Alto. In 1925, the town of Mayfield was no more. Now, Palo Alto already had a Lincoln Street, so they renamed Mayfield's old downtown California Avenue. And nearly a century later, it's one of the last reminders of the place that refused to close its bars when Stanford came to town. In case you were wondering, you couldn't legally buy a drink on University Avenue, Palo Alto's original downtown, until 1971. And even back when the Stanfords were demanding a dry college town, they were the owners of the world's largest winery, just north of Chico. And they had a winery on campus. Hypocrites. Our next question takes us to the Palace of Fine Arts in San Francisco. It's like a little slice of ancient Greece plopped right in the middle of the Marina District. If you haven't seen it, picture a large pink and sand-colored rotunda flanked by colonnades, all sitting next to a dreamy, reflective pool. Reporter Jessica Plotchek went to check it out with a listener who had a question about some statues that seemed to face the wrong way. Let's drop in on the conversation. Can you introduce yourself? Uh, My name is Emily Stauffer, and I have lived in San Francisco for nearly 20 years. And Palace of Fine Arts is one of my favorite places in the city. I love to come down here and knit. Really? It's terrific people watching. Because, like, you get tons of tourists, like, tons of different kinds of people. Oh, yeah. And the quinceañeras that come down, weddings come to do photo shoots. It just is a real... Like, everyone in San Francisco comes here. And we are here to talk about the sad-looking ladies that top a lot of the columns here. And it looks like there's usually four of them surrounding these big concrete boxes. And all the ladies are leaning towards the boxes with their heads resting on top of the boxes. Uh, They're known as the Weeping Women. 
another funny thing is when you're walking under them, their butts are just so massive. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. I mean, that's the other thing I kind of thought about. Well, I, maybe they just didn't want to take the time to detail out 72 faces. Did you get here before me and you started counting all of them? Yeah, I, I tried to count. I think there's 72 weeping ladies. Yeah, so there's a lot of them. So my question is, why do all of these women have their backs turned? What's the story that you love telling? So the story that I've heard that I really like is the designer sort of had the Greek columns and the style dictated to him, and what designer likes to have creative work dictated to them. So he turned the ladies' backs to uh, signify his ennui, and that's the part that really got me excited. I was like, anytime you're so bored, it has to be in French. Sign me up. <laughs> and I'm kind of cynical. So it's the, like, the spiteful nature of it that I enjoy. Um, I'm going to tell you what I know. So the Palace of Fine Arts was built for the 1915 Panama Pacific International Exposition. It was like a world's fair, and they built tons of stunning structures, including the Tower of Jewels, which scintillated with thousands of cut glass gems. And most all these structures were supposed to be temporary, but preservationists liked this one, the Palace of Fine Arts, and kept it around till it needed to be rebuilt in the 1960s. Anyway, back to the beginning. So the Palace of Fine Arts was designed by Bernard Maybeck. The inside hall held tons of impressive art, and Maybeck wanted the structures outside to remind visitors of romantic European ruins. Now that's the key word. So he wanted to evoke a melancholy and reflective feel. A sculptor was hired because Maybeck was not a sculptor. Ulrich Ellerhausen, or I hope I'm saying that right. Ulrich Ellerhausen. How would you say that? Yeah, Ulrich Ellerhausen, Husen, something like that. Hello, the German pronunciation is Ulrich Ellerhausen. And when he moved to America, it was Ulrich Ellerhausen. And he was the sculptor who was brought in to make these women. So Maybeck's plan was actually to have these women covered in vines so that they would only be partially seen. Inside of these boxes, we're just going to be like pouring forth vines. This would heighten the ruinous vibe. It was supposed to be a, like a very quiet place, very reflective in a chaotic exposition. And they had their backs turned, probably because that was more melancholy and reflective and evocative of a ruin. So some say it was also to evoke the sadness of leaving such a great exhibition. But because of costs, the vines never came. Like, they never had vines. And so the women have always been exposed and far less uh, ruinous. Right. And, Not you know. There, there would be mystery if they were covered. They'd be a little more interesting. I'm super excited to hear your research, you know, to know that, like, all of these stories, right, they always have a kernel of truth somewhere. Thanks to our three question askers this week, Renee Watkins, Wiley Gregg, and Emily Stoffer, and to reporters Lisa Pickoff-White, Ryan Levy, and Jessica Plotchek for tracking down the answers. Plus, Steven Steiger for his help on the downtown Palo Alto question, and Christiane Avital for helping us with that German pronunciation. We would love your help deciding which of these three questions we should answer next. Why is there a Texas flag in front of San Francisco's City Hall? Why and when did the Beta Breakers race get so wacky? And the final question, 
How did Patagonia jackets become the unofficial uniform of the Bay Area? Visit our website, baycurious.org, to cast a vote for the question you'd like answered. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for our monthly Bay Curious newsletter. Bay Curious is made in San Francisco at KQED. I'm Olivia Allen Price. Thanks for listening. Hi, Bay Curious listeners. Are you ready to play May's trivia game? Every month, we read a question here at the end of our episode. You can give us your answers over at our website, kqed.org slash baycurious, or just click the link in the episode description. Out of the correct answers, we'll randomly choose one lucky winner to receive a cool prize package with Bay Curious swag and Sierra Nevada goodies. Okay, our question for the month is, the world's longest-running pillow-fighting contest was held from 1966 to 2006 in what Bay Area town? Our trivia quiz is made possible by Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Good luck! Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. 